Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Alahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 6th. Today, allegations of harassment and financial misconduct in the Catholic Church. An imagined glimpse into a storied political marriage and D-Day, 75 years later. For years now, the Catholic Church has been plagued by scandal after scandal. Allegations of sexual abuse, subsequent cover-ups, and for years, the Church has promised that it will get better. In the last year in particular, the Catholic Church and the Vatican have been really emphasizing that they're bringing accountability and transparency and lay power to the Church, largely around clergy sex abuse. Michelle Borstein covers religion for The Post. And this week, Michelle and her colleagues got a hold of a secret internal report about a West Virginia bishop named Michael Bransfield. That report suggests that the church is still failing to follow through on their promises of reform. And it shows that alleged wrongdoing inside the church goes beyond sexual abuse. Our reporting basically raises questions about whether those same issues apply to financial accountability and lack of transparency and oversight in a whole new area for the church. For 13 years, Bransfield was the leader of the Catholic Church in West Virginia. Bishop Bransfield is one of the more well-connected leaders in the U.S. Catholic Church. Then, last fall, Bransfield resigned. That same day, they said, and we're also opening an, an investigation into complaints that he had, that Bishop Bransfield had sexually harassed seminarians and young priests. In March, there was an announcement from Baltimore Archbishop William Lorry, the official overseeing the investigation. The church was suspending Bransfield. They cited unspecified acts of financial and sexual misconduct. That was it. And there was no indication that anything was going to be made public. That was until Michelle obtained a copy of that secret report. She also got financial records from the diocese. And in those documents, Michelle found the concealed details of Bransfield's suspension. And they also offered a rare glimpse into church finances. The report makes a lot of explosive allegations about him, some of which are things that have been rumored for some time. There were complaints about him sexually harassing people who work for him. Hmm. And like other the, other members of the clergy? Yes. The sexual harassment complaints that came in about Bishop Bransfield ranged from people who said he would comment on their body, ask if they were working out, drop sexual innuendo comments, to hugging them too much, too tight in a way that made them uncomfortable, touching their bodies, touching their chests, touching their groin, pulling them onto his lap. So that issue of sexual harassment was out there. It wasn't what was out there over the years was a reputation like, oh, you know, party atmosphere, but it wasn't clear what that really meant. The report also goes into a lot of detail about something that a lot of people in West Virginia noticed over the years, which was this, you know, incredibly poor state where this cleric was living really big. 
What does that mean for a member of the clergy living really big? So the report detailed, you know, this lifestyle that was really off the charts, especially in such a poor part of the country where he was spending, you know, close to a million dollars on chartered jets flying. Chartered jets? Flying himself around, even to get to places like D.C., you know, personal travel that the diocese was ultimately paying for overseas with companions to, like, fancy resorts. He took... The house that the bishop lived in, and apparently there was a fire in one room, and they redid the house to the tune of, like, more than $4 million, tens of thousands of dollars on jewelry for gifts. Wow. Um, And this was noticeable, too. Well, the more we heard in our reporting and and even in the last 24 hours was people there noticed that, like, you know, there was this kind of, you know, really elaborate gardeners and always fresh flowers every day at the office where he lived and— For people in a small town, I mean, they knew that, you know, they were spending close to $1,000 a month on alcohol. He really liked Cointreau and fancy wine and stuff like that. The report also alleges that he is an abuser of narcotics and that Mm -hmm. that was something he also used money on, including oxycodone, and and that he was often intoxicated in his alleged interactions with seminarians and sometimes when he was preaching. And where is he getting all the money from to buy all this stuff and pay for all this stuff. Yeah, this is one of the just the craziest aspects of this story. So in West Virginia, they have this very crazy situation where more than a century ago, there was this New York heiress who met the then Bishop of Wheeling. They hit it off, and she wound up donating, being a huge donor to the diocese, and she donated— In, in West Virginia. In West Virginia, yes. And she left them money and also— a big, huge chunk of land in Texas that later turned out was full of oil. So, I mean, this is definitely Beverly Hillbilly's kind of situation. I mean, it (laughs) was just— That's the first thing that I thought of. Yeah, it's just an unbelievable detail. So they basically sell people the right to drill oil on that property. And it has spun off millions and millions of dollars over the years, which has goes into an endowment, which is invested, which is hundreds of millions of dollars. And so he just used this money, you know, in ways that are— outrageous to people in that area. So Bishop Bransfield presumably had access to a lot more money than an average clergy leader would have. Yeah, definitely. And then you've reported that this report says that he also used some of that money to give gifts or payments to other leaders in the clergy. Yes. According to our reporting, Bishop Bransfield gave $350,000 in cash gifts to other clerics, especially, well, many, there were hundreds of them, including, you know, just priests in the in the diocese. But the biggest checks went to the biggest wigs in the Catholic Church, some of the people who are close to the Pope. And among the people he sent checks to was Cardinal Kevin Farrell, who he had worked with in Washington, who's now a high-ranking official in the Vatican. He sent him tens of thousands of dollars for his apartment. And, you know, many clerics got $10,000, $20,000, including people who were the ambassadors to from the Vatican to the United States. That's sort of the conduit of power for the Vatican in the United States. The people who say, hey, this way I might make a good cardinal someday or and those people got tens of thousands of dollars. And what do we know about why he was giving all these people money? Just because he liked them and wanted to give them gifts? What we know about the people who he gave money to was they were people who theoretically could have been in a position to either help him with his goal of becoming an archbishop or a cardinal, 
or would have been the type of people who would be reviewing a case if there were complaints, for example, about sexual misconduct or financial misconduct. So in theory, when you're asking the question of why this person had so many allegations of sexual harassment against him over many years, but there was really no serious action taken against him, you have to wonder whether part of that may have been because of the fact that he was giving a lot of money to a lot of people who were high up in the Catholic Church. Yeah, it could be that they were intentionally looking the other way. I mean, these checks are not small. So, but we don't know for sure. You know, there are a lot of theories about why he did what he did, but we can just look at the fact that in the end, when the report was being compiled, the part that was removed from the original report were the names of the people who received the biggest checks. And what does that mean? Well, the Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, who oversaw the investigation into Bransfield starting in the fall and said to the lay investigators, go wherever you want. At the end of the day, the only thing that Laurie's office requested removed from significant thing that that they wanted removed from the report was this reference to the individuals who received the checks including Lori, who received 10500 from Bishop Bransfield. So the person investigating this bishop also had received a huge amount of cash from him and then is in a position to redact his own name as one of the people who got cash from this guy. Yes, and does redact, and does redact, yes. That the earlier report, that, that fact is removed in the final report that went to the Vatican. Wow. Did you ask Archbishop Laurie about this? And also, what did Bransfield say about this? We did. We we spoke to both of them. Archbishop Laurie said the money that he received was compensation for masses he celebrated in West Virginia. And the remainder of it was, was gifts, essentially, from Bishop Bransfield for holidays or other special occasions. And he said yesterday he would return that money that was the not the payment for the masses. We spoke briefly to Bishop Bransfield yesterday, and he gave a blanket denial that he had done anything wrong financially or sexually. He said he was being treated poorly by people in West Virginia that were enemies of his and that he couldn't talk to us at length, and then he hung up. So what has happened to Bishop Bransfield? So Bishop Bransfield, in September, when he, you know, retired, went to Philadelphia, where his family is from. What's going to happen to him now, we don't really know. In March, the the Vatican said, okay, we've concluded this report, no details, but he's not allowed to act as a bishop. That's all we know so far. And is there any chance that he's going to have to pay some form of financial restitution, or is there any chance of criminal charges against him? So the Catholic Church as a charity is not supposed to spend its money giving non-charitable purposes, so we'll see what the IRS does, if anything. It just... It really strikes me that this is all coming out, what, 17 years after the Boston Globe first reported on sexual misconduct and cover-ups in the Catholic Church. And then we hear these stories over and over and over again all of the time. And how do these things continue to happen or how can there still be remaining questions about the sense of accountability and transparency in the Catholic Church and their willingness to cover up for the bad deeds of of a lot of people. I mean, it was in the early 2000s when the the sex abuse scandal exploded. And at the time, it was seen as groundbreaking that they created these rules that priests were going to be tossed if they were abusers. 
But what they did then that's playing out now is in the early 2000s, the bishops exempted themselves. They wrote out the part where they would also be in trouble for covering up sex abuse. And that's really playing out now because they don't have a system for accountability at the highest levels. So we started this conversation talking about the fact that the Vatican has made a lot of promises of change and that there will be more accountability and there will be more transparency. But from hearing this story, it sounds like a lot hasn't changed, especially for church leadership. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, I think it sounds to me like they're the Catholic Church is at the beginning of its baby steps of really holding people at the top accountable, whether they will give lay people power, real power in the church to hold, you know, these cardinals and bishops accountable, to pick them, to get rid of them, to oversee them, to have access to records, all those things. And they don't exist now, but the voice calling for that is definitely louder. Michelle Borstein covers religion for The Post. She reported this story with Sean Boberg and Robert O'Hara. You can find a link to their investigation at postreports.com. I remember hearing about this play and being like, I don't know if I'm interested right. in, in seeing that or, or hearing more about that. That's interesting because a lot of people had your reaction, Martine. I mean, this is not a play that people absolutely said, I have to hear more about the Clintons. I'm Peter Marks. I'm the chief theater critic of The Washington Post. And the play that Peter is talking about is called Hillary and Clinton. It opened on Broadway in March. John Lithgow plays Bill Clinton, and the role of Hillary is played by Laurie Metcalf, who's up for a Best Actress nomination at the Tonys this Sunday. The play takes place in 2008, on the eve of the New Hampshire primary, when the character of Hillary is starting to worry that she won't win the Democratic nomination. So she reluctantly brings in her husband to help. How about if you stop being cold and stubborn and guarded? No, I know this version of you all too well. And if this version of you does to everyone else what it does to me, it's just going to push people away. Is that right? Is that how it works? In my experience. Your experience. Your experience. And I think that for me, I approached it that way myself. I was very skeptical. But the more that I saw it as a portrait of their marriage, and more than that, trying to answer the question of why she has stayed. My experience is that it's best to sort of kind of keep some stuff to myself. Because when I have let some of that stuff out, it's not gone so well. Didn't go so well. In fact, when you and I were last here in New Hampshire back 16 years ago, that time you seemed to be so nostalgic for, I have no idea why. I sure as hell am not nostalgic for it. I sure as hell am not nostalgic for those moments, like the moment when everybody found out that you were sleeping around, that moment when your inability to get certain things under control nearly cost you 
the entire race when it fell on me to go out there and tell everybody what a good guy you were, what a good husband you were, how you were such a trustworthy fella. Beyond the obvious sort of uh, political aspect, you know, the sort of the career implications of Hillary and Bill's life together, you start to have, you start to think as you watch this very short play, it's only 75 minutes, about the woman and what she really wants, more so than you really do about Bill. Hmm. And for that reason, it grabbed me, and particularly in the person of Laurie Metcalf as Hillary. And everybody seemed to have something to say about how I reacted, about what feelings I had or didn't have, about the feelings I was expressing weren't real feelings. It was as if the way that I was feeling, it wasn't how other people thought that I should feel, or it didn't seem to match their idea of how a real person would feel. And I remember I told you, I asked you, I pleaded with you, please don't put me through that again. And you promised me and I believed you. But then six years later, you did it again. I think that one of the interesting challenges about something like this is that I can imagine it would be really easy to turn this into just somewhat of a prolonged impersonation, right? Like a like a long version of an SNL skit where you just have someone playing Hillary with all of her mannerisms and the way that she speaks and someone playing Bill, who's maybe one of the most impersonated people on the planet, and that you could just have a whole play about that. But but you said right. that, that it's pretty different from that. Yes. Yeah, so when I, when I spoke to Laurie Metcalf at a roundtable with the four actors in uh, Hillary and Clinton, she told me that very specifically, in fact, in the script, she and John Lithgow both told me that they were instructed not to sound like Hillary and Bill. Thankfully, Lucas stipulates that he doesn't want impressions done. Right. So that's the, that's the free pass in my eyes, to do our own interpretation, thank God. Because if it was up to impersonations, I wouldn't be in the play. You might be, you might be. So that then we could tackle it as just a brand Mm -hmm. new um, fictional role that we've, you know, been offered to to play. There's no attempt. It's basically Laurie Metcalf uh, not trying to be any kind of impersonation. And, And I don't even think Lithgow does a Southern accent. So I'm curious... When you talk to Lori Metcalf, how did she describe that experience of of playing Hillary Clinton and tapping into some of those emotions and motivations? Well, Martine, when when I talked to to Lori about playing Hillary, she felt a certain amount of trepidation about approaching the role. I think we all just wanted to make sure that it wasn't done with a wink, that that it was respectful, respectfully portrayed. Mm-hmm. And with as much empathy as possible, because we all feel that. Um, so we didn't want it to be able to be, you know, judged uh, in a superficial way. I think for the audience also, it's like, how many things does she have to go through <laughs> before something goes right? And yet she keeps coming back and fighting yeah. and fighting and fighting. But yeah, I like those characters that um, they're, they're, they're so committed and passionate to a fault sometimes, uh, but you have to root for, their, for, for that passion. 
There is not an attempt here to make them into Madame Tussauds wax museum figures. It's really about the essence of their relationship. I think this is why this is so much more interesting to me than I thought it would be. That it's mm-hmm. that in many ways it's a story about the Clintons and their particular marriage, but it sounds like in a lot of ways it's about a marriage and people and how their marriages evolve over time and how partners disappoint you and how you make right. decisions on on squaring your own ambitions with with what makes your partner happy and that it's painful to watch people evolve over time and that those are really universal themes that you don't have to be a Clinton to understand. Indeed. And also, when one of the partners has been so deeply hurt and the other one is, you, you wonder if the other one is looking for ways to rise in their estimation again. How do you navigate that as a as someone who has wounded someone, has humiliated someone so publicly and is looking for ways who may in fact still very much love their part in this woman. I you know, I don't know that this play answers that question. And so that also is fascinating because it leads to the question of why they're still together. What when so many other marriages fall apart under way less stress than they've endured. Uh, and and that is, as you say, that is a portrait of a marriage, not necessarily the Clintons. After you saw this, I don't know if you're married, but... I am. Did, did you think about your own marriage? Of course. I, you can't <laughs> not. I think that's the glory of theater. When it works, you personalize it and you bring it, you know, back to yourself and you do start to, you think about not so much the circumstances. It's not the circumstances that you're trying to match up. It's the quality of the relationship and how people communicate with each other and what happens behind closed doors when the door closes on the hotel room and they're there alone just between them. And how candid we all are when we're trying to work out uh, something very, very difficult in our lives. And maybe that's part of the reason we've, we're have we also fascinated by them, because we do sort of have two sides of the story in public always. Peter Marks is a theater critic at The Post. Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. Listen to the story of the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of Donald Trump to President of the United States. Download and listen today. And now, one more thing from the Post Barry's Sverluga on the 75th anniversary of D-Day and journal entries by his grandfather. My grandfather died in the fall of 2006, my dad, when he was a teenager, had stumbled across this journal that his father, my grandfather, had written in the summer of 1944. And he had filed it away in the back of his mind as something to look for as he was going through his parents' personal effects. And as he described it, it was not in some special place. It was in a random drawer that he was cleaning out. And he immediately identified it as the journal that he had seen all those years ago when he was probably high school age. It added another layer to our understanding. He knew his survival was just random. It was not 
because he was more heroic or smarter. Or it was luck. It was just sheer luck. And that was something that he, he had with him the rest of his life. We who are left, modern science shall never again cure our wounds, for our injuries are in our minds, and we alone, with time and rest, will decide on our future and fates. Now the quiet rolling hills of England have seemed to dim out those awful memories of the past that we are all trying so hard to forget. I know there is nothing in this world that will ever take those memories away from us, regardless of how hard any of us may try. This morning of July 11th also brought to me the news I had so impatiently been waiting for. My wife had given birth to our child, a son, on June 29th. It was as if the world were lifted from my shoulders when I knew once again that she was safe and well. Was it just a coincidence or was it faith? On that day that had marked my life so bitterly with suffering and death, my wife had brought into this world our son. Now I have only but one desire, and that is to go to those I am so proud of and whom I love so very much, my wife and child. In a few hours, we will be on our way once again, a new ship, a new crew heading for the Mediterranean Sea for what we expect to be the invasion of southern France. Once again, it is goodbye to the shores of England and to those 17 of us who have watched those shores disappear on the horizon so many times before came those same thoughts. Shall we ever see England again? For we knew the coast of her land meant life, safety, and our mission completed successfully once again. As I leave this time, I now have my son waiting with his mother, waiting for me so that I may come home to help bring him into a world of what we all hope shall be peace amongst all men, fighting so that he and his loved ones shall never have to bear the scars of war. Yes, I have a great deal to live for, and somehow I have a feeling that I shall come back to the both of them. But if it's God's wish that I do not, I shall leave with a prayer that my son shall live a better life and a safer life in his world than the life lived in the world of his father. So on the morning of June 6, 2003, we were in Bayou, France, and we set our alarms for before dawn because we wanted to be on Omaha Beach at what would be H hour, which is an hour after sunrise. And, and when the actual attack started, we thought it would be good to see what my grandfather saw, good to picture it in the same light as the sun was coming up and we stood on the beach with him. I just remember two things. One, how much he remembered, details about what he saw, a donkey on the bluff that was there for a minute and then shot and gone, poof, no more. He remembered the shape of the coast. He remembered the army soldiers scaling the bluffs and being shot down by the Germans. And then I also remember just feeling really small I remember standing with my grandfather. We were all kind of walking around somewhat aimlessly, almost like in a haze. And you don't really know what to say or if to say anything. A cemetery is such a quiet and reverential place anyway. But I found my grandfather kind of looking out over the crosses. And uh, for some reason I said, 
I'm sure it was awkward, but I kind of said, well, what are you thinking? And he said, could have been me, could have been me. And it was very clear that he had dealt with that thought for, you know, six decades since, since it had happened. Barry's Verluga is a sports columnist for The Post. You can find a link to his story, which includes excerpts from his grandfather's journal, at postreports.com. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 